As a proud supporter of Parkinson's UK, the Focus on Why podcast is supporting this charity by including their Time for Can campaign in this episode. Can't work, can't walk, can't taste, can't talk, can't move, can't eat, can't remember, can't sleep, can't finish, feel ashamed, can't smile through the pain, can't stop the voices, can't make it stop. Parkinson's, the fastest growing neurological condition in the world. There is no cure. Yet we can fund, can fight, can discover, can unite, can transform, can live, can change, can give, can slow, can stop, can reverse, can cure. We can do, but we can't do it without you. Parkinson's UK. Together we can find a cure. Donate now at parkinsons.org.uk. Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question. Why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Jerry Tate. Welcome, Jerry. Hello. Hi, Amy. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And we've been brought together by the lovely Michelle Bryant, who recommended that you come on the podcast. Great. Okay. <laughs> So why don't you start by explaining to the audience what it is you do? So my name's Jerry Tate. I'm a partner in an architecture practice called Tate Harmer Architects. So uh, with my partner, Rory, who's sat behind me, uh, and we uh, run an architecture practice. We're based in Dalston, but we work all over the UK and sometimes internationally as well. And we specialise really in sustainable buildings, which are set into very sensitive landscape settings or very sensitive heritage settings or often both actually so sort of sensitive and uh, landscape and heritage mix if you like um, that's us <laughs> so explain to me how you got into architecture uh, well yeah no well architecture is one of those things where um if you are at school and you can draw basically and you say you want to be an artist but you still pass maths and physics uh they tell you that you have to go do architecture that you can't just go and do art so so you do kind of get steered into architecture if you're one of those kids at school who can draw you do kind of get steered into architecture if, you, if, you, if you're good at kind of the other stuff as well but i have to say actually also i, I grew up in suffolk really which is that the, there's not a huge variety of professions in suffolk. and uh i did um I, I learned to paint a lot with my gran who lived in woodbridge and in woodbridge there was also an architecture practice i used to hang around a bit as well called mullins and douse and I was used to think, oh, this is, this is nice. You know, these people, they get to draw all day. That's what I really like with pens. You know, it's the old days when you didn't use computers. It's fantastic. It's what I want to do. So, anyway, so there you go. So, so yeah, that's kind of how I, how I fell into it. So more of a, a steer as opposed to a choice. Um, yeah, although I wanted to be an architect from a very early age, actually. I think from the age of 14, I kind of knew that that was what I wanted to do. And it's quite interesting. A lot of architects are quite dedicated like that. And I think that what happens is between starting an architecture practice, uh, so starting an architecture course and finishing, actually qualifying, there's something ridiculous like a 50, 60% dropout rate. Because it's seven years long, it's actually the, the individual degrees are quite good foundations to go into other things like, uh, for example, web development or special effects or something like that. So quite a lot of people um go into an architecture course and then spin off into something else basically 
and and it's the ones who kind of started the course really wanting to be architects who tends to be the ones who come out the other end and actually actually qualify if that makes sense um yeah <laughs> so where did you choose to study your architecture uh well i so i well i studied in three different places actually and and it's quite interesting your sort of journey through through what you understand because when you start an architecture course you, you actually don't know much about it so you're you're not necessarily making fully informed decisions but then you also your parameters change as you go so i i decided to study at nottingham university which was um at the time quite a small course but a very kind of like solid professional course and particularly there was a couple there called robert and brenda vale who i really liked who at the time and this is sort of 1993 they were um the sort of green architects, you know, the sustainable architects in the UK. And that was a time when sustainability just wasn't, you know, so much of a thing. And people thought they were ridiculous building, you know, houses with triple glazing and half a metre of insulation. They're like, why are you doing that? You know, um, they're, they're really ahead of the curve. They're, they're, it's really interesting kind of doing a degree with them. Right? And I really enjoyed it. It was a really good kind of technical base. Um, but they left uh, after my second year, actually. They moved to New Zealand. And, and sort of Nottingham then kind of lost its appeal for me. and. I got interested in a place called the Bartlett, which was um, uh, the Department for Architecture at University College London, which at that point, about three or four years earlier, had been taken over by um, a very famous luminary called Peter Cook, who was a, um, he was a big teacher at the AA. He's a very famous guy. He's part of a group called Archigram, very sort of exciting architects in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and he's he's a real uh, I don't know how to put this really he's a real bad boy do you know what I mean like he's 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 like he's really up for changing things he's really really interesting fantastic person really sparky and he had taken over the Bartlett and 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 just completely changed it into this sort of place that was spinning off this amazing interesting work and you just saw this amazing work coming out of the Bartlett I thought oh, I want to study there uh, so it's quite hard to do the transition from Nottingham to the Bartlett because Nottingham was the had very much the opposite attitude to architecture. It was very steady eddy and it was kind of based on Corbusier and it's quite kind of fixed in its attitudes. So I, I that actually then went and worked for someone who worked at the Bartlett because I thought that's a good way to get into it, basically, to be honest with you. So so I went and did a year out with um uh, a fantastic bloke called Kaney Tan, who I'm still in touch with a lot. Who, um, so in architecture, what you do is you do a degree, then you do a year out, and then you do a diploma or a master's, and you do another year, and then you're qualified, basically. So that's a sort of seven-year process. So um, I, I went and worked for Caney. Uh, it was, again, like, actually great, but kind of mad, because he had jobs all over the world. He lived half in Singapore and half in London, um, partly because he liked that, uh, partly also, you know, the brutal truth at that point it wasn't so cool to be um gay in singapore and and so you know he, he sort of had slightly double lives as well um but you know and that that was really fantastic fun i learned loads with caney that was sort of start of my introduction to the bartlett and then 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 i did two years at the bartlett uh with uh, under a tutor called nat shard and obviously peter who was involved with everything at the bartlett at that point because um he, he he's now sort of he, he'd kill me for saying this but he's quite old peter and you know he can't keep up what he used to be like, but he was—he was just—he's just a force of nature, really. You know, he's everywhere, and he, he knew everyone, and he'd have dinners and lectures, and you know, it's very exciting. Um, and that was great fun doing two years at the Bartlett. Um, uh, you know, just absolutely doing the most incredible, interesting work. Um, also doing things like learning how to weld, 
and do proper metal work and do proper joinery. You know, had a really good workshop with really kind of keen staff, teachy stuff. So I really enjoyed that. And that, I think the Bartlett was like 101 for design, basically. The, the best analogy I've ever heard is um, the Bartlett teaches you to play the rock guitar. That makes sense. So, so if I wanted you to to kind of, if if you wanted to get really good at playing the rock guitar, um, it's probably not going to help you too much immediately to learn the history of the classical guitar. Like it might be useful in the end if you want to keep going with it, but if you want to get going right now, you've just got to pick up a guitar and play. And 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 the Bartlett's very much like playing the rock guitar. So that was fun. Um, and then actually, what happened was I um, came out of the Bartlett and worked for a company called Grimshaw. For a few years basically and um had a really interesting time there and i guess we're going to come back to that as sort of you know professional stuff but one of the things i did between um grimshaw and um starting my own practice was i i took a sort of further um break if you like and went back into academia and did a master's at harvard university um and the reason i did that was actually because I felt like I did want to learn the history of the classical guitar. It's quite interesting. You know? So I've sort of been playing the rock guitar for a number of years and then suddenly like, oh, I want to know what this is all about, really. Where does this all come from? Um, and, and what Harvard is particularly good at is sort of, you know, the critical theory base, basically. So it helps you understand um, like the whole history of architecture and where you kind of sit in that process, which is useful, um, not necessarily in a day-to-day -day professional basis, but useful... For us, you know, when we're thinking about what we're up to as a practice and why we're doing what we're doing. I mean, you know, it's not accidental. You kind of are who you are. So, you know, we run a sustainable practice and that's what we do. But that's also, we run a sustainable practice because we think that is the most pressing design issue facing the profession right now. And so you might as well just say up front, that's what we're doing, because that's the problem that we've got to solve. There you go, blimey, that was a bit long, wasn't it? Sorry. No, no it's not long at all. It's a long all. course. That's the trouble. <laughs> <It's brilliant. laughs> so you're just you talking about sustainability and you're talking about how you're working with sensitive landscape and heritage. What is the, the key point for you for doing that? So I think that there's, there's, there's a few things in there. You know, there's, there's a technical thing about um, building a building which doesn't use a lot of energy, doesn't you know, use too much water, um, uh, sits lightly on the earth, doesn't damage the environment that it's in. You know, there's all, there's all of those things, which actually when people talk about zero carbon, they, they tend to sort of, when people talk about sustainability, actually, they're quite often talking about kind of technically operational zero carbon. And then, and then there's the other thing that's coming, which is embodied carbon. Um, so when people talk about carbon, that's, that's the carbon emissions associated with the energy, basically. So people tend to measure energy use in terms of carbon emissions. And... There's this technical stuff in buildings about how much carbon does your building emit on a day-to-day -day basis and how much carbon did it require to build your building. And in terms of sustainability, that is really important, right? And that's something that we're really passionate about. We know a lot about it and we really like it. Um, but what I'm really keen on is that sustainability is seen in a much more holistic and broad manner because sustainability is also about providing a great place for people to live allowing, you know, in terms of things like good daylight, good natural ventilation, a healthy place to be. Also about promoting good community interaction and good social interaction and being a nice place and a good kind of base for a community or an institution or a family to live. And then feeding into that then is its relationship to its immediate environment. And one of the things that we're very passionate about is that um, people have an opportunity to connect with 
and um, understand kind of beautiful natural settings. So a lot of our clients are sort of a bit like that. Like we do a lot of work for the National Trust, say, or the Habitat First Group, Scout Association, and that's their thing. So then it becomes about how do you start making these buildings, you know, which are sustainable buildings, but how do you make these buildings which allow people to experience that natural environment whilst obviously protecting it at the same time? So it's quite a difficult, but interesting balance. And it's something we really enjoy as a challenge, actually. And how are you helping the sort of the environment become more urban because that's what's needed, but also stay as natural as possible? Yeah, I think, that, I mean, that, uh, that is a really interesting question in terms of sort of, you know, the, the amount of space in the world which is taken up by urban development is due to double over the next 20 to 30 years, basically. So that, that's like a massive wallop of urban development. And actually, after that, interestingly, is supposed to tail off. Uh, so, so actually, after that, um, the kind of population levels out and, and the, urban, the urban growth kind of is, is supposed to slow down. But obviously, if we if we are going to expand the amount of land that's taken up by urban development uh, that much, we need to start thinking about how we integrate the sort of the green infrastructure, people call it, which is basically, you know, nature. It's the soft stuff. It's, it's how do we get wildlife and trees and ecology into our urban setting? And how can we thread that through all of our developments? And actually, the thing that we're up to now if you like, we started on one side, which is, um, you know, for about 10 years, really, we've been building buildings in sensitive landscape settings. But now, of course, we're getting much more, as our work starts to get bigger, we're getting much more work in kind of urban and places like London environments. So the thing then becomes, instead of folding it into a sensitive natural setting, how do you fold a natural setting into an urban environment? And that, that's the sort of problem that we're starting to um, really focus on now and I think that's kind of really interesting and it, it comes back to you know I, I grew up in Suffolk and I had a lovely like Enid Blyton type childhood and it's brilliant you know and, and I, um, I could go and play in the stream and I could mess around in a field and I could run through the woods uh, but my you know the nearest best mate was Martin Dyer and he was three miles away and it was really hard to cycle because it was in the days when people smashed it down country roads basically so you're a little bit isolated you know and now I live in North London, uh, which is fantastic. And I live in North London. I see my neighbours on the way to work. My kids can pop around and see their friends. But, and actually, we're quite well provisioned in North London in terms of parks and stuff, which is what makes it a nice place to be. But the risk is that you make these urban environments, which are really good for this sort of social interaction, but lose that connection to nature that I really enjoyed as a child. And, and really, I think, you know, it's very important. One of the things that we're really passionate about is, is creating those environments that kind of maintain that link, essentially. And how do you weave in the wildlife into a more sort of stage setting? Yeah, no, well, it's, that's a really good question. First of all, you know, you have to allow space for it. And it might be that allowing space for it involves making a slightly denser development, um, you know, generally to allow space for... These, these sort of elements of landscape to, to come into your space. So, so thing number one is like strategizing for it and building it into your brief and what you plan to do. But thing number two is, is actually thinking about it before you uh, get too far down the line in terms of design. And what happens is 
normally with with green stuff that there is there's an amount of green stuff and it's drawn as green on a plan and and, and that's it and it goes boom um and it's quite a big lump and it's in the middle of of kind of big things so there's a big lump of green and then there's lots of houses around it and that's it what's the two things that are more interesting than that than doing that we think as a strategy so thing number one is threading the green throughout the development so having things like green corridors going through developments having smaller little pocket parks as well as a kind of giant lump of green in the middle because you tend to find that people want to have the green that they access on a day-to-day -day basis is something that's kind of immediately available something that kids can run to and play in for example walk around without walking a long way. If you can see it from your window, that, that is particularly strong. The other thing is actually to be really clear about what the different elements of green are for, which is a bit like saying being careful about designing them, but actually it's a bit more strategic than that. So not every element of green is a bit of grass, for example. So it's quite, when you, when you discuss um, uh, green infrastructure in a city, you quite often think of a parkland and you think that's what it should be. But there, there are also areas of wildlife, potentially. There are also areas of kind of more richer ecology. There are also areas of woodland. There are also wetland areas. You know, there's a sort of, there's quite a rich ecological base and palette for us to choose from. And it comes from the briefing stage, really, actually, the very early setting up of the project, that you start to establish what different bits of green can do for you and how they can be integrated into your urban development. And you talked about some of your clients being the National Trust and the Scout Association, that they're on board with this. What about developers? How easy is it for you to talk to clients about the importance of the development, including the, the green space? Yeah, no, that, so that's really interesting, actually. And, and I think that that is changing. And the type of developers who are coming forward now are changing. There is a new generation of developers. Um, I won't name any names, but I, I think that there are some very established sort of house builder or large scale developers who are understanding this is coming, but aren't really on board with achieving it, if that makes sense. There are people who we work with who obviously, I think, really get it. So, for example, we're working with um, Keyland at the moment, Keyland Developments, who are part of Yorkshire Water. And um, they're quite typical of the kind of people we work with. We quite often work with developers who own a lot of land. So they'll be an estate or they'll be a farmer or they'll be someone who's got an understanding of, of kind of wide sections of, of, of ownership of land and a kind of very long-term interest in the land. And so, you know, we're doing some houses up at Eshalt for Keyland at the moment, 150 houses. And um, it's all about kind of water and landscape and management of water and creating a better sustainable carbon positive community because that's what they're like as a company. You know, Yorkshire Water obviously aren't going anywhere. They have a really, really long-term interest in, in the land. So there's those type of developers who are kind of naturally going in that way, and they're the people who employ us right now. Um, then there's there's a sort of there's also then a crop of developers who who are kind of more recent on the market. So um, we've worked with some of them. So Hab Housing, for example, uh, which is um, Kevin McLeod founded that, and, and and they're doing some really fantastic work in terms of building communities. But there are also people like Igloo or Tau, who we're working with as part of the Quality of Life Foundation at the moment. So I had a workshop yesterday with them, um, and they are very seriously looking at uh, the whole um, uh, aspect of quality of life, basically, and how you can build uh, communities that have a sense of wonder about them, you know, and, and trying to work out what that wonder is. And, and what, one of the things we talked about yesterday is actually 
you know, there's things that we think, there's things I think, obviously, about, about greenery, and, and there is some data on that. But there, there's a few things that we would, as a foundation, they're looking at doing. So gathering some data on, on exactly what benefits that provides, but also asking people, you know, in a very kind of popular place where people think it's a wonderful place to live, what is it about this space that you find wonderful? And seeing how then we can bring that forwards in, in sort of our new developments. When you talk about quality of life, are you talking about well-being? Yes. I mean, it is in lots of ways to do with health and well-being, I think. And, and again, one of the things we see in our work is that is um, something which is being more and more understood by um, the general public. You know, because in the end, right, we're making products that people are going to buy. I mean, I mean, you know, architects don't like to think that they're a consumer-driven design discipline, but the truth is, you know, people have got to want to live in what we all want to work in and want to get taught in stuff that we're designing. And I think certainly post-COVID now, people are becoming kind of acutely aware of how where they live affects their health and well-being, both in terms of things like, you know, they've got a nice natural setting that they can easily access, so there's a bit of greenery, that they've got good daylight and good ventilation, uh, and it's a nice place to hang out, especially if you're at home all day in lockdown, suddenly you start really understanding, you know, that your home is environment can really affect your mood. Um, and also, particularly things then about social interactions. So, you know, in your day-to-day -day interactions in your neighbourhood, can you bump into people? Do you see people? Is there somewhere for you to do basic things like pop and buy a pint of milk without getting in a car? You know, the other thing about quality of life, of course, we talk about a lot is recent housing developments uh, of, of, say, 10 years ago, quite often prioritised the car a lot in terms of their kind of layout, as opposed to the community, you know, and the community um, should be something that's more important than the car. The question about what is a street for, things like that. So, um, so yes, health and well-being is is a thing that's 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 becoming more and more to the fore, and we see that as well. Another part of our work is hotels, actually, and you know, that is the trend right now with hotel work is is improving. They call it the health and well-being offer, which sounds sounds a bit kind of cynical, doesn't it? But the, the truth is that what they're talking about there is you know better food, uh, good local supply chain, um, you know, somewhere nice to do yoga. You know, it, like it's actually quite a lot of very interesting and good holistic things which can at the same time you know make them a more broadly sustainable institution so what i'm seeing here and what i'm hearing is is the huge amount of responsibility that you're you're taking on to shape the way that we're going to be living going forward and and taking that responsibility to home people but also to provide a home which is going to provide a better quality of life yeah, yeah, no, I, yes, yes, absolutely. Well, so it's interesting you should say that, though, because it is a big responsibility, right? You're drawing something and someone's got to live there. And, you know, we do uh, hotels, homes, and we do schools uh, and universities, right? So so in all of those, you know, someone's either going to live there or they're going to stay there the night and have a nice, you know, and it's got to operate well as a business and people got to enjoy it, or they're going to be educated in there. And then if you're a kid, you don't have any choice. You've got to be in that classroom. So so it is a big responsibility. But the, the flip side of that is I would say that um, architects are a component in a broader chain, you know, if you like. So, so architects swim in the ecosystem of the building industry and building industry, at the very top of that, there are, there are kind of the funders and the banks who are quite often pension funds, actually, who, who pay for the buildings. You know, below them are the developers, who are the people who put together 
the money and the design team and the land. And they, they, they have a sort of quite an instigating role in setting it all up. And then, and then we're, we're in the design team layer, if you like. So, so, so we coordinate the structural engineers, the M&E engineers, the ecologists, the arboriculturists, the heritage consultants, all those people to create a design. And then, and then, and then the people who then kind of follow what we say, if you like, in terms of the drawings are the contractors, if you like. So the contractors and then below the contractors are the subcontractors. So they're people like, you know, the plumbers or the bricklayers and all those people. So there's a sort of quite kind of broad ecosystem and, and we are kind of in the middle of that ecosystem. So I think, you know, I think we have a massive responsibility, but I think everyone in that ecosystem is part of that responsibility at the same time. And it's, 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 it really works when everyone gets it, it really works. And, and the reason I say that is because, um, you know, I, I, I really understood that when I, I started my career at Grimshaw as the project architect for a lot of the Eden project down in Cornwall. So, so I, we still work with the Eden project a lot now, actually. We'd, we're kind of in the middle of designing a hotel for them and stuff like that. Um, and they're, they're fabulous clients. But, you know, on Eden, everything was aligned in terms of what they were trying to do. You know, the, the, the people who uh, essentially paid for the Eden project in the first stage with the Millennium Commission, who had very clear objectives about sustainability and education. Then you got to Eden, who's, who's, you know, Tim Smith and a lot of biologists, basically, who really understood their mission. Then you get down from that and there's um, McAlpines and the design team who, you know, again, as contractors and architects and design team members, all understood it. And then they had workshops to make sure that all the subcontractors working on the project understood it as well. So actually, when all of that responsibility you're talking about is understood vertically right through the supply chain that's when you get you know an inspirational and incredible sustainable project basically so uh, god i've made it sound very complicated building a building haven't i gosh i'm <laughs> sorry about that well one thing i want to pick up on though is you you're talking about the, the top layer being the banks and the pension funds now they're mm. looking for returns they're looking for huge returns is mm. it is it easy or is it possible to create sustainable developments and still deliver those returns? Yeah, well, okay. So, so there's two things on that, actually. So thing number one is what return are they looking for, actually? So, so um, uh, and how fast is it uh, and, and what is it? So, so they are all looking for return, but not all of them are looking for the same kind of return. Some of them are looking to hold on to something, get an income. Some of them are looking to get their money in and get it out again. So they're looking to kind of flip it. Um, some of them are specialist uh, funds which have uh, quite clear ethical requirements, for example. So, so they have to invest in certain types of projects. So it's, it's sort of, um, so that, that's kind of slightly sidetracking your question. I'm really sorry about that. But you know, it's just like what we find is that the people handing out the money quite often have an agenda and it's really important to understand what that agenda is. Because, uh, you know, for example, also we do projects that are things like um, heritage fund projects where uh, that's essentially the lottery who hand out money to create new museum projects and things like that and and, and they have a very different set of criteria to say a a bank on a short-term loan basis and they have a very different criteria to like a fund like Aberdeen Standard who generally want to hold on to stuff and get a steady income so the reason I say that is because um depending on who you're talking to depends on how you can frame the sustainable conversation. And you're totally right, because actually what your conversation, what your question is, is like, how can we present this stuff to make sure it happens? Because if we can't demonstrate there is a kind of basic financial return, then there's a risk that it will just kind of fall by the wayside. And people say, well, that's very nice, but why am I going to pay a bit more money for that? 
And, and going so, back, to, yeah, well, yeah, go on. Oh, well, no, no, no. So, I mean, like, well, things like Aberdeen Standards say, what, what you find with them is that you can talk to them about ongoing costs. So, so one of the ways to talk to them about sustainability is, is you are going to keep hold of this building for a long period of time. And we um, need to make sure that it is a you know, decent building that gives you a decent return, but also that doesn't use too much energy, that doesn't use too much water, because you are essentially going to have to pay those bills. Um, a bit like someone you're building a house for. So when we started our practice, we were building new build houses. We still do that now. I love it. But, you know, with them, they're going to pay the bills. So all kind of owner-occupier people, you know, it, it, sustainability, you can talk to them in terms of kind of payback. Then there's the people who have a kind of broader outlook on what they're doing. So um, say someone like Keyland, for example. Keyland are also, they're not just beholden to financial return, they're also beholden to Ofwat, who have to, um, uh, they have to demonstrate that they are innovative and sustainable to Ofwat. And they also hold a lot of natural capital, it's called, hold a lot of land. So um, with them, for example, they work on a six capitals model. So uh, there's natural, but there's also human, manufactured, intellectual, um, financial, and, um, and manufactured. I don't know if I said that already, sorry. Anyway, there's, there's six different capital models, and they assess all of them to determine the payback of their, uh, of their project. And one of those is financial, basically. So that, that's the structure that they've got in terms of their finance. The most difficult people to persuade, though, you're totally right, are the ones who they want to build it and to sell it. And the reason that's difficult is at the moment, and I think this might change, at the moment it's very hard to demonstrate you can essentially sell a sustainable house for more money um, than a not sustainable house, if that makes sense. And it, 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 actually that probably is true, right? Like probably it's true that if you build a good house, with good landscape, good daylight, and it's got low energy bills, it almost certainly is actually going to sell better. But you don't demonstrate it at the end. What we're talking about is the finance at the beginning. When you're setting up the structure of that, you have to demonstrate that that is true. And there just isn't sufficient data at the moment on that to, to, to show that. So I think you're right. In that situation there, you have to be working for a developer who believes that they can get a better return because that is the kind of thing that they do, if that makes sense. And it has to be as much about belief than it is about hard data. Um, and and they, that's back to people like, you know, town, um, also people like Habitat First Group who've done work for, you know, that's their thing. You know, they, they're, they're going to essentially um, sell their products, sell their houses, sell their homes on the basis that it is a better community for you to live in. You're going to have a nicer space. So on the sort of rock star to classical guitar spectrum or continuum, <laughs> and, <laughs> and how open to innovation and sort of, or, or how resistant, I mean, what, what's going on with the construction industry to what you're presenting as being sustainable? Are they on board? Yes, yes. So it's quite interesting, actually. So there are a few things which shift a bit when you want to build a sustainable building. Traditionally in the UK, kind of most small-scale stuff is masonry construction, actually. So it's, it's called block and brick cavity walls. So if you see all the Barrett homes going up, you know, they're actually changing now, to be fair to them. But all the old-fashioned Barrett homes are kind of block, insulation, brick. Generally, that's how a lot of buildings are built in the UK. Um, and then at, at scale, then, what you find is that they're quite often um, steel frame with, with composite aluminium cladding. So... But one of the things you find is as soon as you start to have a conversation about 
I'd like to create a, a building which has low operational carbon emissions. So I essentially wanted it to use less energy. Um, and also I want a building that has low embodied carbon. So I want it to, to not have created lots of carbon by me building it. You really start coming down to timber frames, essentially. So you, timber frames are really good because they can allow you to have thick walls of insulation. So you can have up to like 150, 200. Some of our buildings have 300 mil of insulation thickness. You know, normal house would have about 100. You know, that in a, in a masonry construction, that makes a ridiculously thick wall. Whereas in the timber frame construction, you have room to be able to kind of achieve that. And you can also do a lot of things like prefabrication with a timber frame and make a very kind of airtight building. And that's not to say that you don't get any fresh air in because you do put fresh air in and stuff. But it's just that if you want to not lose air through drafts, building with a timber frame is a really good thing. So it's a really good way of building a low operational energy building. But also, if you look at all the different materials you can use, uh, uh, from masonry, concrete, steel, timber is the only one which is carbon positive. So by um, growing a tree and putting it into a building, you are removing carbon from the atmosphere. Whereas every other material in kind of superstructure terms, if you like, is, is emitting carbon in its manufacture. So again, in terms of embodied carbon, which is the other half of the equation, um, it's just much better. Now, the reason I was doing all that is to explain the benefits of timber frame, because timber frame in the UK is um, something which is growing now, I have to say, quite fast. But at the start, we had a lot of resistance to timber frame. And we had meetings with developers 10 years ago where we said, you know, we really like timber frames. A lot of our buildings are timber frames or majority timber frames because of those, those reasons. And they would be very resistant to using timber frame because it's not the norm. You know, they didn't really know it. They'd never used it before. They didn't understand it. In parts of Europe, it's the norm. You know, if you build a house in Germany, it's always going to be timber frames. And, you know, in Sweden and Scandiland, they do really big, quite big CLT timber frame constructions. To be fair now, there are a lot more timber frame manufacturers in the UK than there were. I think when we built the education facilities down at Eden, there were about three who we could talk to. Now, you know, there's, there's, there's at least two or three in every county, which is brilliant, you know. So it's... It's really picking up the pace and it is changing. And I think it's going to have to actually, because there is no escaping the fact that we will have to, to a certain extent, legislate our way through to zero carbon, that it'll have to be enforced. And once it starts becoming enforced, timber frame will have to become the sort of majority way of building buildings in the UK. That doesn't mean they're all going to be timber clad, actually. You know, you can still clad a timber frame building in brick. So they're not necessarily going to look different, but I think we'll have to start thinking about our buildings differently. So what for you is the big mission? Why still architecture after all these years? <laughs> there, there is, you know, I'll tell you the truth about architecture is, is architects are all addicted to the fact that you draw something and then it exists. That is just like absolutely addictive as a thing. So, so that's one thing just to say that, that, that that's actually why most architects still do architecture. It's just the most addictive thing to draw something and then walk around it later on and think, oh my God, I drew this and now it's built. That is an absolutely, absolutely wonderful feeling. You know, it, 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 it's brilliant. I think all architects and certainly us, we like to think that we are making a positive difference by what we do. You know, that, that's really the only reason for doing what we're doing. And so, you know, by um, uh, through the philosophy which we use to do the design of our buildings, we're creating something which is uh, better than what could have been and better th than what has been in the past. 
Um, and when we say better, you know, our particular thing about better is, is broadly sustainability. So we think that is the problem to solve right now. So that is where buildings need to get better, if you like. And, and, and that is our mission, really. And think, you know, if we can, honestly, if we can build like 10 really lovely, good, medium to big size buildings that show the philosophy and show that it can work, and it didn't cost too much money, you know, it was a reasonable thing to have done, but it created these wonderful environments that connect you with nature and don't use too much energy and tread lightly on the earth. That'd be brilliant. You know, that'd be fine. That'd be enough. Just point to those. And, you know, we, did, we did those. Look, we, tried, we shifted it a bit, you know. <laughs> and that's the company mission. What about you as a person? Uh, yeah, well, no. So I, this is the interesting thing about running an architecture practice, that, that you, you, you tend to, you know, me and Rory are both, I would say, you know, really good architects, right? Like that, that's, that's step one. I think we're very good at the trade. But what happens is that you, um, you're actually making a platform for other people to do the design work in. So, so what you're really doing is creating um, a company to help other people achieve your mission or the mission of the company, sorry. You know? um, so my, my personal goal is to um, create a scalable uh, design platform where people can work and be happy and in the same way as we want to make you know sustainable places where people you know really enjoy being we want to make a sustainable company where people really enjoy being um, and they can do the best work they've done in their lives and it helps the company move towards its sustainable mission so I you know you have to be quite careful about not conflating your kind of architectural ambitions with what you're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis you know, on a day-to-day -day basis really I'm I'm setting up a platform to help other people do the best architecture work they can. There's a really good book by Ed Catmull called Creativity Inc. Uh, and he was the president of Pixar. Um, and and, and it, it is a really good quote in it where he says, um, when you're running a creative company, the risk is that, you know, you think that you're the one driving the train. But, but that's not true. You're the person laying the track. And, and you know, you've got to let other people drive the train because otherwise they won't know where they're going. And, and um, I think that's just a brilliant quote, actually, and, and something that, you know, uh, it's good to bear in mind. <laughs> well, they certainly got it right at Pixar, that's for sure. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, you know, the, what Pixar do is they get the best out of people, actually. You know, the, it's, it's not that complicated, actually. You know, Pixar get, everyone at Pixar understands what Pixar are doing, but they do the best work they've ever done in their lives at Pixar. And, and I hope that we can create an architecture practice you know, that does the same. I mean, uh, I'm not saying we're going to be the next Pixar, by the way. That sounds a bit megalomaniac. I mean, I sort of, we're probably more modest than that, just to say. No, I, I think <laughs> what you're saying is that it all comes down to people. It, all, it is all people. I mean, that's the truth, right? We, you start architecture, you think it's about the buildings, but actually it's all about people. And the buildings only exist because people want to do a certain activity. That's the other thing you've always got to be um, careful of, you know, that... that uh, when people come to us and they say, you know, what we need is uh, a block of eight classrooms, say, and it's this, this, and this, you know, your job is actually to work out the activity they're trying to achieve or the change they're trying to achieve at first, and then check whether eight classrooms is actually going to achieve that change for them. Because, you know, the most sustainable thing to do actually is to build nothing. That's terrible. I'm writing myself out of a job, but, you know, if you can build nothing, that is more sustainable than building anything, actually. So, you know, th there is a careful thing you need to do at the very start of a project, which is just to say, right, it's about people and people want to do stuff. And that's why this building exists. 
So I think that's interesting about the whole coronavirus thing right now. And one of the reasons why the building industry is in a bit of flux is, except for homes, everyone has to have a home, right? So that's like a constant. Uh, but even that is changing because the type of homes that people want to live in is sort of changing. But no one quite knows what people are going to do in offices exactly, you know, in, in two years' time. No one quite knows what the future of retail and exactly the future of restaurants is. No one quite knows what the future of hotels is. And when they say that, what they mean is they don't really know exactly what the people in them are going to be doing. And if you don't know what the people who kind of occupy these spaces and the communities live in them want to achieve or want to do on a day-to-day -day and on a long-term basis, it's very hard to design something which is a support mechanism for that. Because that's what architecture is. It's basically a support mechanism for life. You know, really, you're making a shelter for people to do things in. And Jerry, do you ever switch off? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, well, a bit, yeah. I go cycling a lot, I've got to say. That's my, that's my, my thing. Well, I've got three boys, actually. So I have to say, thing number one is mainly I spend a lot of time with three boys trying to, trying to keep them busy because um, anyone who's got... Um, Anyone who's got kids knows this is true, but certainly anyone who's got three boys knows that you have to keep them active, otherwise they're, they're going to go mental in the evening. So a lot of my time is spent trying to exhaust them. So I know you like your longer cycle rides there, Jerry, as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I do enjoy um, ridiculously long cycle rides. And um, actually, I have a sort of annual thing that I do every year where uh, we all cycle down to a property conference called MIPIN in the south of France. And MIPIN is a sort of big international conference. There's a, I think there's about 500 British people who go, and now about 150 of the British contingents. There's 500 British people that go. 150 of them now cycle down there, all of the way from London to Cannes in the south of France, and it, it's really fantastic. It's all raising money for uh, for a charity called Corum. Um, if people know that, it's a sort of the oldest children's charity, basically. So, and, and normally it raises about half a million pounds. So it's a sort of wonderful thing to be doing. Uh, it's, it's a very long way to cycle. I mean, it's quite a monastic uh, uh, ride. But I've I've done it sort of four or five years in a row now. Although this year uh, we we couldn't really do it because um, coronavirus happened. So uh, we actually ended up doing laps around Regent's Park instead for the same distance. So it's about fifteen hundred kilometres from London to Cannes. So we did fifteen hundred kilometres around Regent's Park, which was very tedious. But we did it still, and we got the money in. So that was that was good. But um, yeah, so that's that's what I enjoy: crazy long monastic cycle rides. <laughs> And tell me a bit about Corum and what they do. Well, yeah, no, so Corum are, um, they're based down near Corum's Fields um, in, in Bloomsbury. They're the, the oldest children's charity, uh, I think, in the world. They support a lot of um, children with, with, with problems, essentially. Uh, but one of the key things they do, one of the key things they do is, is they're, they're an adoption charity, but they support children through the adoption process. So a, a lot of adoptions actually fail quite early on, but pretty much no adoptions fail with Corum because they have this sort of wonderful support system in place. They, they also have sort of intervention program to help, you know, children from disadvantaged backgrounds um, uh, get on really and, and kind of, um, you know, rebalance the equity of childhood. They're really great. If people look them up, they're a fantastic charity. So. Well, and did you managed to raise that even though you didn't do the, the physical race this year? Do you still manage to raise the money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We still, we still raise money. Like, I was actually a bit scared because I, I, I had to email all my sponsors and say, you know, because um, <clears throat> I had about, I think I had five and a half grand of sponsorship or something. Uh, we're not actually going to Cannes, but I'm going to do it around Regent's Park with some other people. You know, do, do you want your money back kind of thing? I wasn't quite sure how it all worked, but luckily everybody said, no, that's fine. And, and you can 
you can keep the money. So I, I think they didn't raise quite as much this year because I, I think there's a sort of a, a follow-on that happens. But um, anyway, you know, I, I think if if people could look up Coram, they, they they could probably do with some help. <laughs> oh, brilliant! So you do switch off. That's good to know. I just I just think with your sort of architect vision all the time, it must be you must be constantly thinking of ideas, concepts, and and the future of of what you could. Uh, make a difference how you make that positive impact yeah no you do um uh you, you do and you're always looking at things and thinking how you would have improved things and you're a bit critical on both yourself and other things that you see but the flip side of that of course is is you know again it's back to this sort of like we we do swim in an ecosystem in the building industry you know actually what's really important and what we're always trying to tell ourselves is is it's back to your thing about people right it it, it so say for example we're doing the Brunel Museum at the moment so it's a fantastic job it's lovely we're doing we're doing um uh, down in Rotherhithe it's Brunel's Isambard's first structure uh we did some work on it a few years ago uh it's an un, the first tunnel under a river ever and we made something called the sinking shark which is a big uh cavern by it into a into a form space and now we've got a great grant from the heritage fund to make it into a museum above um, sort of it's, it's an operational museum right now but we're going to help with a cafe and things those projects they're not about us right they're about the museum and brunel um and and actually it's really important that we uh get into that mindset and understand that you know it's not about our architectural genius what it's really about is helping them um express what it means to be a museum in brunel's first structure talking about, you know, Mark is Mark Brunel and then Isambard, his son, who took it over and what that relationship was and what it meant for engineering in the UK. You know, that's not our story. That's that's someone else's story and we're helping tell it. That's the same for all projects, actually. So it's we are always thinking of things we could do, things we could improve. But at the same time, we're normally problem solving somebody else's world, if that makes sense. Quite often we're occupying someone else's zone and we're we're working out what we can do for them to help that kind of work better. If that makes sense. Oh, I love that. No, it's fantastic. Jerry, it's been such a great episode together. I really feel like we've explored the world of well, music and, and architecture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. I've really enjoyed it, Amy. Thank you. It's lovely, lovely to chat to you. Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> so how would someone get in touch with you if they want you to help them with their vision? Ah, well, the best place to go is our website, which is tateharmer.com. So that's T-A-T-E-H-A-R-M-E-R.com. Um, there's a, all the handles are on there uh, and uh, there's a studio email. You can send stuff to that comes straight to me, actually. Uh, um, so, you know, all of the contacts there will, will, will come to us. And we, we love to hear from people. Um, and even if you're just thinking about doing something, get in touch. It's always lovely to talk to people. So, uh, yeah, please do. <laughs> fabulous well they'll all go in the show notes so i'll make sure that all of the what well, the website and all the handles that you mentioned are in there as well do you have a final message to the audience uh yeah no i would actually i mean i've, I've banged on about sustainability right and I, and I feel a bit like um i worry about it sounds a bit like a kind of like you know telling people off right sustainability and so there's, there's only there's only two things i'm going to say two things is that right i'm going to cheat i'm really sorry thing number one is the thing that tim smith always said which is actually sustainability should be a really positive message that you know if you if i said to you you're going to have a, a a nicer home with better daylight and it's going to have you know 
better landscape and you're going to wear better clothes and you're going to be happier and you know the skin's going to be better all that stuff that's a good thing right and that is what sustainability should be that's thing number one and then thing number two is that also when you look at it you feel like oh god this guy's telling me i've got to use less energy and i've got to do all this stuff and i've got to buy locally and all that. you know it just sounds like a lot to get done you know but every tiny little bit you do is great right so if you just buy more local you know from 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 a, from a kind of apart from a market not always from a supermarket or you just use slightly less energy or you just put a water saving tap on one of your sinks or you know, all of that stuff every tiny little bit helps loads basically and it's one of those things where small things really matter thank you for listening to the focus on why podcast i'm amy rowlandson and if you've enjoyed this episode please leave me a five-star apple podcast review Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20 minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.